This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Fordard. Summer vacation has barely started. Please, no talking about the fall until we're complaining about the heat. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just started summer. Let's not talk about the fall. Oh, man. My sunscreen hasn't dry, uh, dried in yet. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Erskine in the cloud. Diane and Dave in the newsroom. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. You can send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots of stuff to talk about today. Um, I guess big news coming out of the United States uh, in that horrific Chicago shooting yesterday of a Chica- in a Chicago suburb. Uh, a 22-year-old has been arrested. Uh, a suspect has been found. Uh, so uh, more on that as uh, the day progresses and a profile of that person. Uh, hearing lots and lots of reports again about hospital staff shortages. This is right away across the country, and it really gets frustrating. I know uh, health care is a provincial issue, uh, but this, again, stems back to uh, issues that we were identifying during the global pandemic and the fact that we need a new funding formula from the feds, whether it's a mixture of private, whether it's uh, more money from the feds. They all have great programs across the country. That's not the problem. The problem is they don't have the money to fund these things. So uh, before we start uh, duplicating the system for dental care, duplicating the system for pharma care, uh, coming up with something similar for daycare, why don't we fix the system first and make sure that it is sustainable? Because clearly, even post-pandemic or in the latter stages, whatever you want to call it, there are still major concerns right the way across the country in regard to our healthcare system. Yet, we don't seem to be talking about that. Also, uh, we've heard lots of uh, blame game in regard to the airport situation, especially, especially what's going on at Pearson. Uh, over the course of the, of the long weekend, uh, Canadian uh, situations, airports, airlines had uh, the top four uh, out of the top five global issues uh, across the world. So, no, it's not happening everywhere. So uh, can we address the problem and move on? Also, uh, Bank of Canada rates, uh, which are likely to come later in the month, uh, now, uh, many, lots of talk about how that could possibly trigger inflation. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And on that note, Christia Freeland, Deputy Premier, sorry, Prime Minister, was in Brampton today and talking to um, uh, an industry out there in regard to uh, the economy and trucking industries and such. And here's what she had to say. Our economy is recovering very strongly from the COVID recession. Our GDP today is 2.2% bigger than it was when COVID hit. And we have the strongest jobs recovery in the G7. 
And that means that we need our supply chains today more than ever to continue to drive economic growth for Canada. And we know that the heart of strong and reliable supply chains is truckers. Truckers here in Canada who move the goods that Canadians need at all hours of the day and no matter what the weather. And it is inspiring entrepreneurial innovative companies like KJS here in Brampton and the hardworking drivers, mechanics, front office people who I've had the real privilege and honor of meeting today, um, without whom our country, our economy would not function. What is she saying? Who is she talking to? What point is she trying to make? We all know what it's like. We all know what we are as Canadians. What's the point? Here's Christia Freeland on inflation and China. Inflation is a global phenomenon. It's caused by Vladimir Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine. And it's caused by China's zero COVID policies and by the supply chain snarls, which have affected the whole world as we have opened up in the wake of COVID. And actually, the trucks that I am looking at right now behind the cameras, those are actual physical examples of how global supply chain problems are creating real challenges here in Canada. Um, the wonderful mechanics here at KJS explained to me that those trucks aren't able to leave this workshop because they're waiting for parts that originate in China. Are you just understanding that? The mechanics, the fine mechanics there are telling you that those trucks can't get back on the road because there's no parts coming in for them. We're just understanding that? Maybe this goes back to the discussion of self-sufficiency. Whether we're talking about energy or anything within the supply chain. Blah, 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 and nothing is said of any substance. We can't do anything, apparently, about inflation. We can't do anything about gas prices. Yet we can save the planet by you and I paying more uh, taxes and more everything. Canada is going to single-handedly save the planet, but we can't do a damn thing about high gas prices. We can't do a damn thing about inflation. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of talk of alternative, but there's no idea of what that is because we've been working on it for at least 30 years because I'm old enough to know better. I remember when all this started. Germany at the forefront of all of this. Not there. Mixed bag. can take a combination of. Yet here we are. Here we are talking about alternatives and the minister can't even mention what they are. What are we sending? Again, out of touch, just babbling away and not really saying anything, not really coming up with any kinds of solution. Just feel-good, woke moments. And I think we're beyond that post-COVID-19 or wherever we are with this global pandemic. 
Just saying. All right, here we are. Uh, summer of 2022 officially has uh, is underway. And the great thing is, uh, after the last two and a half years of whatever that was uh, that we've been through, it looks like things are slowly starting to return to normal. And we're getting um, full slates of festivals and, and acts and, and various things, uh, events going on throughout the city and uh, all over the place, to be uh, to be honest. And the Concrete Canvas Mural, uh, Mural Arts Festival is returning, is returning to Hamilton later on this month. Originally running from 94 to 2002, it's starting up again, or did, in 2019, and then we know what happened then. Uh, Leon Robinson and Scott McDonald have been the organizers since the start, and join us now. Leon Robinson, the founder, Scott McDonald, the lead curator, and are with us now. Leon and Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. So I'll throw out the questions, and whoever wants to jump on them, uh, feel free. But first of all, explain the concept. What is this? What's this about? How does it work? Leon? Um, Concrete Canvas is a full-on mural festival now, so we're all around the city. We started out um, 2019 doing mainly in the downtown corridor, um, John Street, James Street, Barton, into Hess. And now we've got locations on the mountain, and um, we're just going to keep expanding the footprint, changing the visual landscape in um, Hamilton. This year, we have an activation festival at um, 501 Barton Street, um, which is Woodlands Park. So we're bringing back the music, the sound, the dance and all that as well. And um, it's a celebration of hip hop culture. But, you know, um, we know graffiti art came from punk and skating and all of that as well. So it's just uh, it's just a celebration man, of art artistry. And does this continue on through the course of the summer or does it have a, sta- a, a state or a, a stated start date and end date? Um, well, there's, uh, you know, we're, we're starting at the, a lot of, a good portion of the artists will be painting from the 22nd or from the 20th to the 24th, but there'll be stuff mm-hmm. like we're doing mentorship programs and we have a lot of other things that'll be going on throughout the year as well. So, uh, it's, we're trying to make this more of a, a yearly endeavor, you know, and it's and always got, all our murals were permanent. So they'll exactly. stay in the city for, uh, you know, a very long time. And the walking tours that people can, you know, um, once we get the, the site updated with the new map, when we get the um, new buildings, people will be able to walk and go see all the different um, locations and take pictures. And some um, real cool stuff we're doing this year is um, some augmented reality aspects will be added to some of the um, the walls. So that'll just make for people wanting to get out and experience what that'll be. Scott working on expand a big on, one. That- expand on that a little bit. What does that mean? But the augmented reality? So yeah. um, there's a lot of different options where you can, you know, you scan a QR code, it'll take you to a website and it could bring certain elements of a mural to life. Like it can animate things. Uh, like I did one on uh, at the old Tivoli Theater on James Street North uh, where I, I made an animation, like a 24 frames per second animation of someone skateboarding. And uh, it's basically I painted it about 80 times and then made a video of that. But on the wall, I just have... Uh, the image of the skateboarder in one in the beginning of the video sequence. You scan the QR code, and on your phone, uh, the wall comes to life with him actually skateboarding. And uh, it looks really organic. It's kind of a really neat feel. And no matter where you move, it stays directly on the wall. Using like that's LiDAR incredible. Yeah. Where, where do you get space? How do you pick the spaces? Where do you decide where these go? We hustle. <laughs> we we definitely <laughs> hustle, but. Just due to the fact that we've been creating such incredible high quality murals, a lot of building owners have been reaching out to us 
We have friends in bylaw that when they see, you know, um, um, buildings being tagged up and whatnot, they might say, hey, you should reach out to Concrete Canvas Fest. They, they might be able to help you out with your problem. And um, yeah, just Scott and myself are always on the ground, rolling around, looking for walls. And uh, if we think we see something that might be visible and good, we'll approach owners, show them our deck of artists. And um, we've been getting a lot of yeses, which has been incredible. So now what happens? Do they get uh, defaced? What happens when they get tagged up, as you said? Like, does that happen after these murals get put up? Because obviously these are pretty incredible. There's a lot of work goes into that. What happens when they get vandalized? Well, we, we do fix them, but for the most part, you know, we try to include, you know, the the mural scene and the graffiti artist scene so everybody gets a chance right. to paint. So, right. you know, we try to have uh, complete, you know, uh, uh, involvement within all, of, you know, all aspects of graffiti culture. So, um, you know, there is kind of a mutual respect and most of the work doesn't get messed with at all, at least in Hamilton. Other cities, you know, they don't really take that approach by including everybody. And um, they have a lot of problems because of it. Like Montreal is a perfect example where it's just, um, you know, there's a battle between graffiti artists and muralists and it's, uh, mm. it gets a little ugly, to say the least. This is incredible. So do you, do you have a website we can go to to find out more about all of this or a page of some sort? ConcreteCanvasFest.com. ConcreteCanvasFest.com. Uh, go ahead. And then our Instagram um, page has been... Um, pretty good with uh, populating all the different artists that'll be when their times are you know and uh we've been populating so, yeah um yeah so our, originally our, our, our this social media oh sorry go ahead uh, originally, this was started in 94, then it went to 2002, and then uh, stopped or, or lagged a bit, and then started just before the pandemic, and then obviously that couldn't, you know, and, and obviously a rebirth now. So why the delay, the interruption in the two? How come starting up again now? To be honest, in that regard, um, a lot of times it was uh, it was centered around the story I had called The Boom Spot, which was the first hip-hop store in Hamilton. So um when i when i got rid of the the big reason it stopped was somebody spray painted the bathroom while while the event was going on and jackson square said it could no longer happen there anymore oh man so that 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 kind of you know stopped the um the movement of yeah. it and then in 2019 it was scott that had came back and said hey man um thinking of doing a mural fest let's let's get together and do something you know so we started to speak and we started to come up with names and then i think he had said you know what why don't we just call it concrete canvas again you know so that's that's where it kind of came back yeah and there was and that's there was the also story issues. there was also issues with the city uh, i think like in 97 or something like that they created a bylaw where you weren't really allowed to have spray paint uh, art on your walls and that lasted up until hmm. i think 2017 and uh, you know we worked at changing the bylaws and doing a lot of things like years leading up to this to finally get to this point where we were allowed to start doing this festival again the Concrete Canvas Mural Arts Festival returning to Hamilton. Leon Robinson, the founder, Scott McDonald, Lee Curator. You can look up uh, their pages and see what's going on and how they are beautifying uh, Hamilton uh, one wall at a time. Uh, incredible story. Good luck with all this, guys. Moving forward. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Much appreciated. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Here's what our affordability plan includes an enhanced Canada workers benefit that will put up to 2,400 additional dollars into the pockets of low-income families starting this year. Cutting childcare fees by an average of 50% 
by the end of this year. A 10% increase in old age security for seniors 75 and over, that comes into effect this month. A dental care program starting with children under 12 this year. A $500 payment this year to help people who rent and are struggling with the cost of housing. And of course, our main support programs, the Canada Child Benefit, the GST credit, the Canada Pension Plan, Old Age Security, and the Guaranteed Income Supplement are all indexed to inflation and will be increasing. Is any of that resonating with Canadians? Does any of that help you? That's the question. A pair of new reports from the Bank of Canada point to rising inflation and how Canadians and businesses are feeling about this. Many saying that this is going to last a little longer or a lot longer than what they uh, or what we are predicting it will. And uh, Canadians uh, also more concerned about rising prices of gas and food and rent. Uh, no surprises there. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Eric Cam with us, uh, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Always a pleasure. Hope you are as well. Yes, thanks so much. I don't know if you heard uh, the Deputy Prime Minister there, uh, but is any of that helping? Does any of that resonate with Canadians? Because it, it, it seems that uh, they're missing the bus here. Well, they are missing the bus. I mean, don't get me wrong. Anytime the government can put money into your pocket, that is a good thing. The problem is you have to differentiate between a one-time handout and something that is going to make people consistently better off and raise their disposable income. And so the only way to raise disposable income is either increase the amount of money people earn or decrease the amount of tax that people have to put out of their pockets. Now, this does neither. Again, before people get mad and Twitter me, sure, they're taking a small, small proportion of the population and giving them a handout, and that's fine. The problem is economic research always shows that these one-time handouts get consumed very quickly, yes, by the people who need the most, but when they're gone, they're gone. They don't do anything toward growing the economy, growing the real sector, or making people better off in any type of long run that is meaningful. It, it is the definition of a hand out, not a hand up. So is it good? It's fine. It's a tiny percentage of the population and a tiny drop in the bucket when you compare it to what's going on with prices. So that's a very long answer to your question. So you asked, is it, is, does it resonate or not? Well, with me, no, but it is something and you never sneeze at putting money in people's pockets. Uh, Christy Freeland in the same speech talk, uh, talked about uh, less about high prices, high energy prices now, and more about the transition that has to happen. Uh, she said no one has a crystal ball as to where the economy uh, is going. However, it, it seems we're talking a lot about alternatives that nobody knows what is or, or, or what that entails. Christian Freeland, along with her boss, are both full of it. And I say that with all due respect, because that's what they've deserved in the last 20 or so months uh, of, of trying to manage our economy. It is absolutely about nothing more than the fact that right now the price level is increasing 
in unprecedented speeds that we haven't seen since the 1970s, a little bit in the 1980s, and a touch in the 1990s. But for the last 30 years, Scott, that's a generation of people. They haven't had to worry about prices going up significantly. They haven't had to worry about interest rates going up significantly or the cost of borrowing money going up significantly. And now you're seeing that house of cards starting to crumble. So I actually really resent it when anybody in the government says, well, let's not look at the prices going up. All that's doing is trying to to do what a magician does and say, don't look over here, look over here. People, and I beg the, the good listenership of CHML, don't look at anything else other than that price level going up because that is eroding your wealth. It's eroding your income. It's eroding your wages. And the government better turn its attention to it very soon, frankly, before it's too late. Uh, personally, Eric, I'm all for saving the planet. I think that's a, a really good mantra to live by and, and support anything that moves us forward in that. But I find it fascinating when the deputy prime minister says there's nothing they can do about inflation. It's a global thing. Nothing they can do about gas prices. It's a global thing. Yet, by taxing the bejeebers out of this, out of us, we're going to save the planet. It seems that they're so focused on climate change, they are completely oblivious to what Canadians are going through. Exactly. It's exactly what happens when my eight-year-old starts playing on his iPad and he can't pull himself away. The government (laughs) seems to be terribly obsessed right now with things like the uh, Green Plan and alternative energy sources and indigenous issues. And as you say, those are all important. I'm all for all of them. And they each deserve their day in court, as they say. The problem is, is that they don't matter today as much as people losing their homes or people being able to feed their children. You've got to worry about today. John Maynard Keynes said famously, in the long run, we're all dead. And while that's an exaggeration, it's never been more relevant than right now. People are within one paycheck away from insolvency. Studies have shown that people are two or three hundred dollars away from having no money, no savings, no security. How can the government look at that and say what we really should be worried about is cleaning the environment? That will have its day, Scott. It's not today. We have got to secure the welfare of families in Canada. Anything else, any other priority is foolhardy. Uh, We're seeing labor shortages virtually in every industry, uh, rising wages. It it looks like the pendulum swinging back and there will be rising wages. When that happens, is inflation inevitable? Oh, it's inevitable, but it's worse than inevitable. It's here. It's here with a vengeance. And you know what? The one thing that Freeland said is true is that we have no crystal ball, but you don't need a crystal ball to know that we're caught in a spiral right now. So whether it's going to last one year or two years or two and a half years, again, does that matter to the family that's having problems putting food on the table, affording gas to get to work or affording food at the grocery store? And the answer is no. So again, let's cut the diversionary tactics. Let's exactly look at what's going on right now. This is a supply side spiral. And you're right. When wages start to catch up, that's just going to further increase prices that we pay at the grocery store and other gross register items. So this is why we call it a spiral. First wages go up and then the price level goes up and then wages go up and price levels go up. When you combine that with what's going on in monetary policy, it's really... It's really a a recipe for disaster. And that's why I'd ask the government 
to drop the ridiculousness that is anything other than the economy right now and work with the Bank of Canada to help everybody afford their lives. People are asking for nothing more, Scott, than just to afford the lives they have today. Good point. Eric Ham with us, Professor of Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. Always fun. Eric, thanks for the time. Be well. It's an honor. You too. Stay healthy. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Do you remember when this started, uh, the whole pandemic thing? I think it was March. I believe it was March a couple of years ago. Because I think my uh, kids were off school on the Monday, and then by Wednesday I was home. (laughs) So... Uh, and the rest is history, as they say. But one thing that this uh, pandemic, global pandemic, did do is it drew attention to uh, Canada's healthcare system, which many uh, boast about, and rightly so in certain scenarios, um, because it's certainly accessible to everybody. Uh, but there's lots of faults within this system, and it seems that we overlook the negative just to brag about the positive. And we all chatted during this global pandemic about how things were going to change when we came out of this pandemic and uh, we were basically hearing the same thing right the way across the country from all different various provinces uh, that they need some sort of funding option. They need something to do to kickstart all of this and 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 get back to where we need to be. So when something like this, like a pandemic does happen, the, the system isn't brought to its knees. Where are we now? And uh, do we still have the um, the interest and the energy and the wherewithal to fix a system that only a year ago, two years ago, we were all very concerned about. Let's bring in Dr. James Wright, pediatric, orthopa- uh, pediatric orthopedic surgeon and executive vice president of the Ontario Medical Association's Economics Policy and Research Division, and is with us now. James, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. It's, um, uh, thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. We certainly remember uh, during the pandemic uh, weak links, flaws in the system, and yes, we're going to fix this. Yes, we need to address this. Are, do we still have that attention, or has that lapsed a bit? Are we, are we lagging on this? Are we still having this discussion? We're a long way from fully recovering from COVID as well as dealing with all the implications of COVID. Hmm. I do believe there's a real commitment and energy to perhaps tackle these problems in a way we never have before. And, you know, the Ontario Medical Association, the government of Ontario, and many other healthcare providers are ready to really step up. Where are we now in um, recovering from this global pandemic? And we certainly know the stress and the strain it put on all our our healthcare system and and workers and such. Uh, Where are we now? What What are the challenges now? Well, I think there's two things that really worry us. One is the demand, and the second is the supply. So on the demand side, we would have predicted um, even a couple of months ago that 22 million different healthcare encounters would have happened based on our ability to predict healthcare utilization, you know, over the time period of the pandemic. Now, not all of those patients... Uh, need care right at this uh, time. Some of them hopefully got better, but we know a lot of them are out there, did not have care, and are waiting uh, to receive care. And unfortunately, we also know that many um, of the, uh, patients, individuals, didn't get health care. So now they're coming later in the course of their disease often sicker and where uh, treatment Mm. is more complicated. And and so on the demand side, we've got 
this um, services that didn't happen that need to happen. We had pre-existing uh, waits for many of our essential healthcare systems, and now we've got patients presenting with um, worsening health conditions. Mm. On top of that, we have the long COVID and the mental health implications that everyone suffered with. So that's on the demand side. On the supply side, um, we are very worried about our health human um, resources. Uh, I think everyone suffered enormously through the pandemic. The stress Hmm. on the population was phenomenal. But physicians had three reasons why it was worse for them. One, they had to transform virtually overnight from in-person to virtual care. Second, they struggled with trying to get their patients into a system that, uh, for many reasons, had to temporarily shut down. And the third thing is they had to live with the risk to themselves and their loved ones of contracting COVID because it treated Mm -hmm. the sick patients as this was going on. So this has resulted in an increase in burnout. And so we're really struggling on a supply side and on a demand side. Let me ask you this, doctor, because we were talking earlier that, you know, is anything going to change after this now that things are are slowly getting back to whatever the new normal is? But uh, let me present this, doctor. Is there any choice here? In in order to survive what you've just talked about, in order to deal with what you've just talked about, change is inevitable in order to get through this. Yeah, uh... You know, I I think that's the only good part that I could point to of the COVID is Mm. um, it's created a shared sense of urgency that we collectively and the Ontario Medical Association has come forward with what we call the prescription for Ontario. It's a five point plan, which had almost 90 recommendations. And this involved talking to the healthcare providers, the stakeholders, the government. And the population of Ontario, we had um, over uh, many a thousand Ontarians who contributed. And it's time for us to come together. And there is no single solution. It's a bunch of solutions. But I, I'm, I am hopeful that uh, we can take this COVID, horrible COVID situation and turn it into something that actually truly transforms the healthcare system. One last quick question, doctor. How concerned are you about the new variants that we're hearing about? You know, Scott... I, I really don't know. Um, COVID's shown an enormous ability to do what we call is mutate. It changes its genetic structure. It becomes better uh, at transmitting itself and possibly infecting mm. people. So uh, I'm really hopeful we don't see the kind of major shift that would allow these variants to um, uh circumvent the vaccine or um, not see those people who've had COVID protected. We just don't know yet. The numbers are going up four or five. The the current variant is unfortunately becoming the predominant variant. Right now, even though wastewater is going up, we're not seeing, um, you know, a surge in hospitalization. So I can only tell you my fingers are crossed and I am hopeful that uh, there's enough vaccine protection that we can get through to boosters in the fall. 
Dr. James Wright with us, Executive Vice President of Ontario Medical Association's Economics Policy and Research Division. James, thanks so much for the time and insight. Be well. All right. Uh, we've talked to Barry Choi a few times about the travel industry and what is going on and the major delays that we're seeing at some major uh, Canadian airports. Uh, and unfortunately, it made global news over the weekend. Uh, no, no, not our, uh, our parent company. No, no, it's Canadian Airlines and airports claim top spots in flight delays over the July long weekend, notching more than nearly any other country around the world. Air Canada had the lead for Saturday and Sunday with like 717 trips uh, delayed in some way, uh, 67% on Sunday. Uh, their affiliates in the same boat, as was WestJet uh, on Saturday with the third and fourth positions. As far as the airports, Toronto's Pearson claimed the number two spot, having the most delays globally. Uh, 53% of their delay of their departures held up, uh, only uh, behind uh, China. Uh, an airport there, uh, Pearson Air Canada's main hub beat out Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, uh, Frankfurt Airport in Germany. Montreal was sixth on Sunday with 43% of takeoffs uh, delayed. So, man, it does not seem to be getting better. Barry Choi with us, travel expert. He's with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. <laughs> Things are always good here. So, we're, you know, we're hearing that this is uh, happening all over the place, but it seems that Canada's at the forefront of this, uh, certainly over the uh, U.S. and Canadian long weekends. What are your thoughts with this new report on uh, how that we are comparing globally? You know, I don't want to give Pearson a pass, but, you know, the fact that you just pointed out it was a Canadian and U.S. long weekend, Pearson happens to be a major hub for both countries. And the fact that, you know, we're seeing the longest delays in history, well, maybe not history, but in quite some time, it almost felt like the perfect storm. So if you were to tell me that person was not on the most delayed list this past weekend, I would have been shocked. So, you know, let's let's try to be a little bit fair with very specific circumstances. But that said, we are trending in the wrong direction. That is for sure. Uh, it, what about smaller airports? Is there any way that they can help, whether it's the Ottawa's, the Hamilton's, the Calgary's? Is there any, are, are they accepting international travel? Are they, are, are they doing what they would normally do during, uh, you know, a flight schedule, whether it's an international flight or transfers or what have you? Well, you know, the smaller airports are doing as best they can. But the thing is, most of the, the international flights are still coming via Pearson. Or, or, yeah. or, you know, Vancouver and Montreal, those are the three major hubs, plus you got Calgary. So, you know, people can get to the major cities first and they go to the smaller airports. Um, they might run into a problem because their luggage, luggage may not make it. Uh, that said, you know, if you're able to fly out of a smaller airport, relatively speaking, and say you're flying domestic, not checking any baggage, yeah, it's probably a, a smart idea, but it's impossible for like airlines to just start rerouting flights just like that because the airspace is controlled. Uh, things take a lot of preparing. Uh, so, so, again, it's just one of those things where, where we keep talking about the domino effect, and now it's catching up to everyone. Uh, does this affect more domestic flights than it does international flights here? You know, I think it affects domestic flights differently. Uh, you know, when Air Canada and WestJet announced that they are going to start cutting flights, a lot of the smaller airports were affected first because, you know, uh, the numbers aren't there. You know, they're not saying all flights it just doesn't make financial sense for Air Canada or WestJet to, to continue those routes right now while there's so many delays. Um, but, you know, looking at the worldwide situation, you know, Heathrow had their luggage system completely break down uh, a few days ago. No one got their luggage. So we're seeing delays 
all over the world right now. Um, and what you're reading in the headlines is, it's you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily fair. You know, you've got once uh, you got a couple of politicians saying, oh, the government, the federal government should hire three to six thousand people. It's like, listen, I don't know about you, but, you know, in my previous jobs, you can hire one extra person it took months for them to get trained up to speed. Right. So yeah, it's not really. something that can be done overnight. So um, uh, it really appears that although people are really barking about inflation, it's not affecting the travel industry. Yeah. <laughs> so it is technically affecting the travel industry in the sense that prices are going up, but we're quickly finding that people are, are hungry to travel again. Um, so they've understand that the costs have go- gone up. Keep in mind that, like, you know, a lot of people probably haven't traveled for two or three years. So they've probably been saving mm. their money. Uh, now that they've got money to burn, they're willing to do it. <laughs> and apparently a lot of people are feeling the same way, which is why we're seeing those those record numbers in airports. You know, I myself have started flying pretty regularly in the last year. Um, I fortunately have not experienced any of these crazy delays quite yet. Um, but I-, I know how to prepare myself as best I can. I guess you could say it that way. On that note, Barry, what are some tips that we can use if we're traveling and uh, and obviously going to enter into this rat race at the airport? What what are some of the things that travelers can do to help out and ease the congestion? Well, easing congestion is something you you won't really be able to have any control over. All right, let me rephrase this, Barry. Let me rephrase (laughs) this, Barry. How can we get through this without, you know, uh, having a heart attack or or chest pains (laughs) or whatever? What are some tips to help us get through it? You, you know, if, if you really want to, I would say the biggest problem at Pearson right now, because that's where most of uh, your listeners are flying out to you or are from, rather. Um, it's really the morning flights to the U.S. that are the biggest concern right now, uh, simply because, you know, it doesn't matter how many security guards they put in. If U.S. Customs is only putting two or three people on the counter, it's going to take forever to clear. Right. So I would avoid personally any morning flights to the u.s and what i mean by that is a 6 a.m 7 a.m 8 a.m flight Hmm. if it's after 8 a.m um you're probably okay with the standard you know two to three hours times in advance i would avoid checking a bag at all costs um but that said everyone's probably thinking the same thing so you know if you're buying a ticket i would personally maybe book a preferred seat which gives you a higher zone class so you can get on the plane and get that overhead storage before other people Uh, it's, it's kind of like Survivor for uh, carry-on luggage yeah, really. and carry-on space these days. So, you know, I've heard people that saying, yeah, we're not checking baggage. We're just doing carry-on. It's like, my God, what's that going to be like if everybody starts doing that? <laughs> you know, it was already a problem before even the pandemic. You know, yeah. every single time yeah. you get on a plane, they're like, you know, you're sitting at the bag and people are trying to fit a, fit a baggage at the front. Uh, so, again, this is what I mean. Like, maybe it makes sense to pay for a higher seat class that gives you the guarantee. Well, not guarantee, but gets you on the plane quicker uh, so you can take up that space. And, and honestly, I feel so bad when I see someone getting on. You know, you know, they're the last person to board and they got to carry on luggage. And there's no chance that their luggage is making on top. And they've got to check it. Um, the other thing I would suggest that may or may not help people is because there's baggage delays all over the world. Uh, if you're going to do a layover or kind of stopover or anything like that, it, it should be way longer than like 90 minutes or two hours. You know, before that would be more than enough time to make your flight. I would not try to avoid scheduling anything for less than four hours. Give yourself lots of breathing room to, to make your next flight. Wow. Barry Choi with us, travel expert on those brave enough to pack a bag and try to fly. Barry, thanks for the time. As always, be well. No problem. Have a good one. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As we speak, there is a news conference going on uh, in High Park, Illinois, and the latest on that uh, shooting that happened yesterday during July 4th uh, ce- celebrations uh, in Highland Park. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, seven dead in uh, as a result of that parade shooting. Uh, to talk more about all of this and give us an update, Allison Keyes is with us, correspondent with CBS News, and on the line now. Allison, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. You're welcome, and I am. I hope you are with uh, Yes, thanks so much. I understand a seventh person has passed away as a result of this tragedy. Uh, what more can you tell us? Yes, please say that this seventh victim was a person who had been hospitalized after the shooting who passed away this afternoon, making the total, the death toll for this awful shooting is now seven. And you know, Highland Park is just barely holding on today. People there are frightened and afraid. Some people have said things like, well, it's commonplace now, meaning the mass shootings. We don't blink anymore. You know, mm. one other woman, Barbara Hart, who's 73 and says there's no safe place. She's she's afraid to leave her house. Even the mayor there, Nancy Brodering, has, Rotering, I should say, has talked about how the tragedy should never have, have arrived at their doorstep. She says it's a small town. Everyone knows someone who was affected by this. And, of course, they're all still reeling. Uh, Obviously, a suspect has been arrested. What do we know about the suspect? He is 21-year-old Robert Cremo. He is from Highland Park. It's a you know, high-end community of about 30,000 people. He fled originally after climbing a ladder to the roof where he fired more than 70 rounds. In women's clothing, he fled, so he blended into the crowd. He later surrendered to police after a chase. They are expected to be announcing charges. I'm, I can't listen to the press conference to talk to you at the same time, but charges are expected at some point this afternoon. His uncle has spoken out to apologize for the tragedy. He was a young man who lived in an apartment behind the rest of the apartment where his family lived. His father, Bob Cremo, ran Bob's Pantry in Delhi, and he ran for mayor once against the current mayor of Highland Park. Uh, the suspect has a rapper alias, Awake the Rapper, and there were often violent images and videos on his websites. Uh, what do we know about the weapon? Uh, do we know if it was purchased legally, illegally? How was obtained any of that? Yes, it was purchased legally, and not only was it purchased legally, when he was taken into custody by police, he had another high-powered rifle in, in his hand, in, his, in the car, I should say, where he was, and there were other guns at his home, all of which were bought legally in Illinois. And gun rights advocates have been talking about this all day today because they're saying this is further proof that young people shouldn't have the means or the wherewithal to buy weapons like this. How did they ID him? How did they? How were they directed towards this suspect in the first place? Considering, because he, you know, I, from what I understand, he did flee the scene, as you said, in disguise, uh, and then somehow they hooked up with him. How did that happen? 
he fled the scene actually dressed in women's clothing. What I am hmm. hearing is that they got a tip from a witness there, but I don't know a lot about that. They're expected to announce more details of that this afternoon. I do know that he blended in with everyone else as they were fleeing, so people thought originally that he was an innocent spectator. He fled to his mother's house, which was nearby, and then later borrowed his mother's car, which is what he was driving when he was pulled over by police later. Uh, you talked about a website and such and, and references to that, uh, references to violence on that. Uh, any sort of motive, any sort of reasoning, any, any depth on the, on the suspect at all from that standpoint? They don't immediately have a motive. And what some might find even more terrifying, even though the shooting happened in a mostly Jewish neighborhood, they don't think that this had anything to do with race. They don't think it had anything to do with religion. It appears to just be a random shooting, except that he had been planning it for several weeks, police say. And what information was on this website? What do we know? Well, one of the music videos showed drawings of a stick figure holding a rifle in front of another figure spread on the ground. There were all sorts of disturbing images and, you know, the violent lyrics and his songs he'd actually been posting to social media since he was 11 years old and was a fairly well-known minor rapper if you know what i mean but Hmm. there was no indication that anything like this was happening and any response from the family or friends that knew him Uh, i understood he was a quiet guy but you hear that a lot what do we know Well, we do know that his uncle spoke to WFLD-TV, Paul Cremo, and says that he is deeply, deeply sorry for everyone that lost their lives and got injured. He says from the bottom of his heart, he is heartbroken, his heart is shattered to hear this, and he can't even believe it. The family is, is pretty well known in the Highland Park area, and it's just taken everybody by surprise. This kid, you know, he has distinctive facial tattoos. He looks like a, fair, a fairly normal kid in the pictures. You know what I mean? It doesn't. He's not one of those people with the dead eyes that you've seen from some mm. of the other suspects in similar mass shootings. So uh, I think his family and the neighborhood is just simply de- devastated. You said his family was well-known, highly visible in the community. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that anymore, Allison? I mean that his father ran for mayor, as I noted, and ran right. a very popular pantry and deli there for at least 18 years. So uh, so th- this surprising all of them, they have no idea they didn't see any of this coming. No, no one has said that they saw anything like this coming. And, of course, it's a high-end neighborhood. Michael Jordan used to live there. It's, it's a mm. neighborhood with mansions and lakefront estates. It's not at all the kind of place that anyone would think that this would happen. And a lot of the victims, people had staked out prime viewing points early in the day for the annual celebration, and those were Mm. some of the first people that were shot. In fact, people fled in such a precipitous manner that they were still going back to retrieve, you know, picnic baskets and, and chairs and toys and blankets and coolers and that sort of thing today. It's just the whole community is completely devastated. But I should note that this was far from the only shooting this weekend. There was a lot of violence this weekend. In Chicago, at least 57 people were shot. Nine people were killed. In New York, some 18 people were shot. Three were killed there. There were two police officers that were grazed by gunfire in Philadelphia during the fireworks celebration there. So it was just a weekend of gun violence in a nation that's already reeling from so many.
You, you mentioned that he purchased the gun, the suspect purchased the gun uh, legally uh, legally in Illinois. There were some rumors that his father might have helped him get that. Do we know anything in regard to how he actually purchased the gun? I don't. So at this point, uh, it is a legal gun, but nothing as far as anybody aiding and abetting him and helping him get that firearm. No, that not that has been confirmed. As I said, he actually had several weapons, and all of them were bought legally in Illinois, both the rifle that he dropped at the scene, which is similar to an AR-15, the high-powered rifle that he was carrying in his mother's car, and there were other guns at his home, all of which were bought legally, according to police. Last question, Allison. Obviously, you talked about all the other shootings that there were in the United States over the July 4th holiday. Does this change the discussion moving forward? I don't know that it does. It seems the people on both sides of that argument are continuing to be entrenched. As you know, Congress just last month passed its first major federal gun reform law, but it doesn't ban sales of assault-style rifles or high-capacity magazines. The president himself said that he wanted more to be in that legislation, and it wasn't there. So perhaps they may go back to the drawing board, but some experts I've spoken to are thinking that this now might be in the purview of some of the states where some of these terrible tragedies are happening. Allison Keyes with us, correspondent with CBS News, talking about the fallout for the 4th of July parade in Highland Park, and a suspect uh, has been arrested. Allison, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. You too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we certainly know the uh, what the Russian invasion of Ukraine has done. How many days? Let me think. What am I? 133. I've got 133 days. That's probably off by a couple. Um, but we certainly know the uh, instability that this has created across uh, the world, whether it's energy, uh, what have you, uh, supply chain issues uh, as well. And in the midst of all of this, it, which is kind of odd considering I think initially one of the fears of Russia was that um, Ukraine was going to join NATO. That was what there was being uh, talked about way at the beginning of all of this. Uh, that, of course, quickly was pushed off the table. But now Sweden and Finland have uh, signed off on the accession protocols to join uh, NATO with membership bids of the two nations uh, going for legislative approvals. To talk about more, uh, talk more about all of this, Arl Brown is with us, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Arl, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. I hope you're well as well. Yes, thanks so much. Oral, what does this mean? So 30 allies have signed off on accession protocols. What does this mean for Sweden? What does it mean for NATO? It is an important step forward. Uh, as the Secretary General of NATO, Jens uh, Stoltenberg, said, it is a historic moment because now the alliance uh, is very likely to be enlarged to 32 members. But, of course, every legislature has to ratify the accession and that will take a little bit of time they will try to accelerate this but the momentum is there and uh, clearly uh, sweden and finland had decided that uh, they no longer could be neutral that the threat from russia was so grave and so imminent that they had no choice and what are the issues around turkey surrounding turkey and and this this bid the leader of Turkey, President Erdogan, uh, is a very repressive leader who is facing elections. 
he is increasingly unpopular. The economy is doing very badly. And so he wants to play the nationalist card. Uh, he uh, designates the Kurds, the Kurdish minority, as enemies or at least certain organizations uh, uh, among uh, Kurds. And he has been pressuring Sweden and Finland to take a, a, a steps to possibly extradite uh, some uh, uh, Kurdish uh, individuals who are living in those states that belong to various organizations, also to change policies that were critical of Turkey's repression of Kurds, Turkey's repression of uh, the media, the uh, very large number of journalists in Turkey who are in jail. And Erdogan does not brood any criticism at home, and he intensely dislikes criticism from abroad. We remember way at the beginning of this Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was chatter and, and you know, one of the concerns was Ukraine was a buffer state between Russia and other NATO states. And, and this was talked about during the initial days of this. And then I think President Zelensky said, hey, we don't have any interest in joining NATO. Now, all of a sudden, you have Sweden and Finland jumping on board. So um, is this ironic in any way that this all started over Ukraine's uh, possible joining of NATO? Although I understand that's a bit more complicated. And then we end up with Sweden and Finland on board. The prospect of Ukraine joining NATO was never imminent because they need to meet, any country needs to meet certain criteria for uh, joining NATO, and Ukraine was not even close to meeting those criteria. So Russia was using this uh, more as an excuse than a cause. We must not forget, again, as we discussed on the program a number of times, that Russia had invaded Ukraine in 2014 where there was no talk about joining NATO, it was over the EU. Mm. So we need to differentiate between the rhetoric issued by the Kremlin uh, and the reality that basically Russia wanted to control Ukraine and uh, they refused to admit that there is even a Ukrainian nationality. They claimed, uh, and Vladimir Putin wrote an essay, that this was uh, an artificial construct. But if uh, one were to be a clear-eyed strategist in the Kremlin, the uh, accession of Finland and uh, Sweden to NATO is a kind of nightmare scenario because now NATO's borders will expand with Russia by over 800 miles. Mm -hmm. Finland has a very highly capable military. They can mobilize in short order some like 300,000 troops, and they have a strong uh, record of fighting against the Russians going back to the Winter War, um, you know, more than 75 years ago. And Sweden, uh, which is an advanced industrialized state with a large and very capable uh, arms industry, they produce some of the finest fighter planes in the world, the Saab uh, uh, 39 aircraft um, uh, uh, Gripen. Uh, they are in the process of rebuilding their military. And so just in terms of a strategic balance, this can present an important shift that Russia, with, with its small economy, will have difficulty meeting. But more than that, the symbolism of two countries that had tried <clears throat> so very hard to be accommodating to Russia, that showed no hostility whatsoever to Russia, that they were driven to this, and the president of Finland made it very clear. He said to the Russians, 
you have caused this. In essence, you have driven us to this, that aggressive Russian policies have become so threatening that even those Western countries that had no desire whatsoever to offend Russia, never mind confronting Russia, now have made a choice. And the choice is to join a collective defense organization, NATO. Aura Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of, Tor- uh, University of Toronto, Sweden and Finland, making their way to become a NATO member. Aural, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We were uh, talking a little earlier on with the uh, vice president of the Ontario Medical Association talking about uh, the challenges that uh, Canadian health, well, specifically the Ontario uh, health system, but this is going on right the way across the country. We've seen this. We we talked about this during the global pandemic and how our highly uh, much praised, uh, highly coveted healthcare system is has got some holes. And it's great that it's universal and it's free for everyone. Uh, however, the performance isn't necessarily the best. And we've seen this with what has happened over the course of the global pandemic. Uh, it got to a point where it wasn't so much the variants that were hurting us. It was the fact that our hospital systems were collapsing. Uh, we're hearing stories now of emergency rooms uh, either combining or closing down. Uh, and, and during the global pandemic, there was a big appetite for this discussion about, and I remember uh, Premier Horgan from British Columbia the NDP uh, uh, premier out there was leading the charge for all the provinces saying, you know, we all provide great systems. We just don't have the funding in place, uh, the funding formula uh, to keep this all up and running. At one point, the feds used to pay half of the province's health care. Now it's somewhere around 20, 24 percent, 22 percent, somewhere in there. So do we have... Uh, do we have the the confidence to have this discussion? Do we have the courage to have this discussion? Or is this something that's just going to fall by the wayside as we slowly move past uh, what we've been going through for the last two and a half years? Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, and with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, God. I hope you're also doing well. So it seems, Daniel, that, you know, we're, we're already, you know, and we know that uh, the provinces are responsible for health care. They deliver it. But we also know that originally with the funding formula and what everybody used to brag about was that the feds paid half. That's obviously changed. Are we too busy now to have this discussion? Have we forgot what we were talking about during the height of this pandemic? I'm still thinking it's front of mind for many people in Ontario. Let's came out with a poll uh, last week, and the second issue was health care. And I think that's one of the reasons why Sylvia Jones was appointed to be the Minister of Health, is because she has a track record of getting things done for the Ford government. And I still think there's an appetite to have that conversation. Provinces will never say no to more money. It's just trying to get that out of the government, which will be the challenge. So it seems that the provinces are all screaming for help. It just doesn't seem to be any communication, any liaison between the provinces and the feds to actually get this done or to move forward on this. Um, Is there any sort of backroom meetings going on to fix this or to come up with some sort of funding formula solution? 
The funding formula has always been a challenge when it comes to the federal provincial relations because the federal government wants to, like, you need to spend it on X, Y, and Z, where the provinces want to have a little bit more flexibility on it. I'm sure this will be an issue at the next premier's meeting when they meet with the federal government because I think a lot of people across Canada still see our healthcare system is not ideal. And if you ask a lot of Canadians, we take great pride in having universal health care. So I think this is something we will see that all governments try to step up on or at least talk the talk. And, and we'll see if they can walk the walk afterwards. It seems rather than have this discussion, we're busy talking about adding to it, like a dental program, yeah. like a pharma program, like daycare, which is all a great idea. But are, we're basing this on a system that, that is flawed already. So aren't we making the same mistakes? Why don't we just fix what we have and then expand it? Because fixing it requires a lot of work. We're introducing something new and flashy. It's a lot more enjoyable for a government. And it's looking to gain support from those uh, outside of their traditional voters. And, and that's the honesty, is that pharmacare is something new, something flashy that people want. And they're willing to kind of put a hold on this health care because they say, we already have health care. Let's try to get pharmacare instead of actually addressing the underlying issues, which is overcrowding, underfunding, and to be frank with you, just a lack of resources that we have in the sector. Uh, it, it's interesting, though, that we assume this won't happen with universal dental care or pharmacare, that it'll just be tickety-boo. And, and that's a very fair assumption. Like, anything the government does, they, they will try to do their best, and sometimes their best isn't good enough. I think if they do introduce pharmacare, there'll be some drugs that are on the list that people will disagree with. Well, at the same time, there'll be drugs on the list that people really need, but they won't be able to have it because it won't make the cut. So I think the government should focus on trying to fix the problem at hand, which is our healthcare system. But knowing how they like to do things, they're very much flashy and enjoy kind of promising things and over-promising and under-delivering. So I would be hesitant to expect them to fix the healthcare and provide more money. I think they're going to try to spread it a little bit thinner and try to have pharmacare and maybe even look at dental care. Um, it appears that uh, other than inflation, gas prices, the high cost of living and such, health care is the only social issue that is still top of mind. Um, is this not important, more important at this point than climate change? I mean, I just finished listening to a speech by Christia Freeland, and, you know, she was very... Uh, very much concerned that the solution moving forward is renewable and so on and and talking about alternatives but when we're in the situation we are i'm kind of scratching my head i'm a 60 year old guy we've been talking about this for 30 35 years what is the alternative that we're missing here well it's always bold to ask a conservative about climate change but i think that's part of the government's overall narrative is they're looking to be very progressive finding new ways and Climate change ties into their just transition program where they're looking to retool oil and gas workers. And it's one of those things in government, you have a lot of things flying at you and trying to deal with a lot of problems. So instead of trying to deal with this healthcare problem, the government's looking at it, but they're also trying to find other areas to continue spending and continue building their legacy. And I, I think healthcare is a front of mind for a lot of people in Canada, especially in Ontario. But I don't know if the government, the federal government is paying it, paying it as much attention as it should be because they have so many other things on their plate. All right, Daniel Perry with us, consultant Summa Strategies. As always, Daniel, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. We've talked about this uh, for a while uh, because, you know, things have changed and, and dates were changed and such. But uh, as you are aware, the Commonwealth Games 
uh, Hamilton hosted way back when. And city councilors have now backed a new memorandum of understanding with a private group that aims to host the 2030 Commonwealth Games in Hamilton. Councilor John Paul Danko expressed appreciation for the Hamilton 100 members' drive to pursue the Games, but is concerned about this and an emotional marketing pitch, as he put it, and also details, in particular, factual details missing on the finances, uh, which will remain a secret. John Paul Danko, Ward 8 Councilor, City of Hamilton, is with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So this is a fine uh, line to walk here because obviously you want to do the best for the city and, and you know, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Commonwealth Games would be pretty cool considering uh, where it all started and such. But what are your concerns? What, what do you, how are you seeing this at this point? Yeah, I really do appreciate the, the passion that the Hamilton 100 group has brought to promoting an event that they think uh, will be beneficial to the city. And, and I really do appreciate all the hard work and dedication uh, that they've put into it. But the fact is, at this point, we really have no idea what that event was is actually going to be or what's really being uh, proposed, because there are real no real details. Uh, from what I understand, though, there's lots of time for all of that. There are off-ramps if we need to do so. Yes, the city hasn't committed to anything. Um, in the memorandum of understanding, we have committed that the city may be a financial contributor. Uh, and during the, the meeting yesterday, it was confirmed that the city is not being able, is not being asked to contribute to any capital projects that will be simply funding, uh, some of the costs to put on the games itself. Uh, so that will all be worked out in the, uh, the multi-party agreement with the federal and the provincial governments. Uh, but that'll be done all behind closed doors and in secret and with no uh, accountability to the public for what it's going to cost, what taxpayers are going to end up um, footing for the bill, or any discussion about is this uh, something that we actually want to invest uh, taxpayer dollars into. And the only time that the cost will be public is after we've already signed the agreements. So what would be the difference with something, an event like this, with a Commonwealth uh, 2020 Games, uh, and, and say hosting a Grey Cup or any other large event? We were talking to the mayor not too long ago, and obviously when we have these sorts of events, it, th- there's a tremendous financial spinoff for the city. What's the difference in, say, hosting this or hosting a Grey Cup or any other major event that we'd be trying to get? Well, certainly there can be uh, pretty significant financial spin-offs to major events in our city, and those major events are, are things that make Hamilton such a great place to live. Uh, so, you know, we, we do want to have um, some of those major events and, and be a part of, you know, that world stage. But I think when it comes to the Commonwealth Games, I think I have to ask you and, and maybe your listeners, can you name where the past Commonwealth Games were uh, or Pan Am Games? Did you watch the last Olympics? And I, I think these major sporting events have really changed recently, and they're not the major draw that they used to be. Um, I remember when Pan Am was on thinking, oh, I, I should go to an event. And by the time I got around to actually looking into going to an event, the event was over and, and everybody forgot about it. So the question is, as a municipality, is this something that we want to invest significant public tax dollars into? The initial proposal had hundreds of millions of dollars in City Hamilton tax dollars being required. Uh, we have no idea what the current proposal is going to require. Um, usually with stuff like that, it's tied to infrastructure, is it not? I mean, you know, you look at Ivor Wynn uh, becoming Tim Hortons Field, all that sort of stuff. Is there a benefit there? So that's 
sort of how a lot of these major events are, are pitched, that if you invest, then you will have legacy infrastructure. But in this case, the city of Hamilton is not being asked to contribute any capital, which means there will be no capital legacy infrastructure. So there's, there's no pool, there's no track and field facilities, there's no basketball courts, there's no affordable housing, no public infrastructure. Unless we invest as a city uh, significant tax dollars, there is no capital legacy. You talked earlier that, um, you know, whether it's hosting an Olympics or whatever, which are obviously pretty major events, that perhaps the interest isn't there. Uh, you, announced, you were asking where the Commonwealth Games have been held in the past, and those are all valid points. Uh, do you think this means more to Hamiltonians than it does to anyone else? I mean, simply because of, you know, obviously the history of, of the Commonwealth Games here. Well, there's definitely an emotional component to it being the 100th anniversary of where mm-hmm. the Commonwealth Games started. I think that is a very valid, uh, valid point that, you know, for a city like Hamilton, it can mean a lot. Um, but again, you know, some of the things that could be incorporated into the games, you know, things like those legacy projects that you're talking about, do we really need to go through hosting a major event like this, putting all this, uh, time and money into or is that something that we should just do as a community because that's something that we want to do but uh, doesn't hosting games like this at least give you a reason and excuse and the financial uh, capability to do such things it can uh, right now we're we're finishing the uh, recreational master plan for the city hamilton which will identify uh, our long-term goals for recreational and sport needs for the city hamilton and there's a good chance that those needs don't align with what is needed to host a major sporting event. So is, are we really serving the community um, in hosting a major sporting event, whereas those uh, facilities and what would be needed might not align with what the actual community needs are? Will time tell? Will time answer all of these questions for you, do you think? Well, I think we'll definitely get some more information once we enter into the multi-party agreement. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see if the federal and the provincial governments are willing to uh, to come to the table with money. Um, you know, the, the provincial government said no to the 2026 uh, proposal. Uh, you know, with a new minister, Minister uh, Lumsden in uh, Stony Creek, uh, maybe that changes things. Uh, but I think that's the big question mark is, is who is going to actually bring money to the table. So what's next on this? Where do we go from here, John? Well, the, the staff direction was to work with uh, Hamilton 100 towards uh, a negotiated multi-party agreement. Uh, so I expect there will be those negotiations with the federal and the provincial government and also with the private partners uh, that are interested to uh, actually develop a proposal for what the games is going to look like, where the events are going to be, the facilities and the, all those kinds of things. And hopefully we'll get finally get a, a firm number of, of what the commitment is required from the city of Hamilton. John Paul Danko with us, Ward 8 City Councilor, City of Hamilton, talking about the 2030 Commonwealth Games in the Hammer. Appreciates the Hamilton 100 memories dr- uh, members drive, but needs some more answers to questions. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck with this moving forward. Anytime. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley joining us now, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. And he is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing great. How are you? 
I'm doing good. I'm going to read you something from your newspaper. All right. Um, and, and, and I wrote for it at one point. Um, quote, who will ever forget it? The parade of athletes from all over the British Empire at the stadium, led by a scarlet-coated Highlander carrying a Union Jack. As athletes paraded into the stadium representing England, Scotland, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, Wales, South Africa, Bermuda, British Guiana, uh, Guyana, and Newfoundland, as well as Canada. <laughs> Newfoundland as well as Canada. It was before Newfoundland was part of Canada. So that's how the spectator was describing, obviously, what? I would guess the 1930 British Empire game. Bingo. Is there still an interest, or does this mean more to Hamiltonians than anyone because we had the first one? Oh, man. it is. Look, it's such a loaded question because um, we're going to be talking about this probably more tomorrow on my show. I know you probably have been today, but this is this is a tough one, Scott, because nobody. I don't believe that there is a real appetite for spending a lot of money on this. I really, I don't get a sense in this community that people are up for multi, multi, multi million dollar expenditures on a Commonwealth Games. That's not what's being proposed right now, to my understanding. That that the the scope of what's being planned, if we were going to bid on it, has been reduced and reduced and reduced. But then you get to a different issue, which is once you've reduced it so much, do you say, well, okay, so now what's the point? Yeah, there, there, It's almost like there's two ends of a spectrum, and we keep saying we've got to take it away, take it away, take it away. And now I stand to be corrected, and, and but the story that I heard yesterday or so was that now of the events, five of them would be in Hamilton. Uh, in the opening and closing ceremonies and track and field, I think, and basketball. Those are fine. But is it really a, uh, is it really a Hamilton Games if just five of the events are here now? Like it just hmm. it's, it's such a hard balancing act because nobody wants to spend on it, but at the same time, why do it if nothing's here? Uh, yeah, and again, I, I can see this, you know, my goodness, the history in Hamilton is is so rich. I was talking to Will about this off air, and, you know, I remember coming here a bazillion years ago and people talking about uh, the Empire Games and the Commonwealth Games, but I'm thinking it's more of, of a local thing than it is a draw. Will people come to see this event? Will this be a financial uh, bonus for Hamilton because wow. at the end of the day, if you host the Grey Cup, if you do whatever, we've heard. You know, we were just talking about last week how much money it brings to the city. Do you think that will happen? That's another really excellent question, and I've long wondered about this. When the games were being pitched, there is the side of it where you say, you know, I don't know how many people are interested in coming to watch uh, Papua New Guinea versus Bermuda in lawn bowling. But if we could get a bunch of new facilities, a new pool, or this or that or the other, maybe that becomes the selling point. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, look, if you keep basketball here, there's obviously a market in this city for basketball. Um, are, are the teams that would be playing here filled with stars? Canada might be. Might be, although, you know, I'm guessing most of the NBA players would not be playing in the Commonwealth Games. Um, track and field? If you had the that, you know, the Usain Bolt of that year, sure, maybe. If you had the Andre de Grasse competing from Canada, sure, maybe. Um, what though, if it's 
you know, just a bunch of the people who are the up and comers. And there, you know, I'm sure there would be a market. Some people would love to go and see that. But, you know, these are these are tricky things. This is this is not the Olympics. And, and the Olympics, for all the problems that it would entail and the extraordinary amount of money that an Olympics costs, and, and we're never going to go down that route, I don't imagine, in this area. We tried. I don't think we're going to do it again. Um, that, at least, you would say, you know what, we'll sell out all the tickets. This one, I, I truly, I truly don't know how it would do. I really, really don't know. And that's a valid point about the Grey Cup. At least you're guaranteed you're going to get pretty close to a full house, if not, uh, depending on who's playing and, and what's going game. on. It's yeah, one yeah. game with a week of celebrations. You can hear yeah. everything to the one event here. Yeah. And again, I know they're saying now that it will only be a number of, of sports here. But, you know, Scott, look, there are still debates about the success in Hamilton of the World Cycling Championship. And for, there were some people in this yeah. city who absolutely loved the World Cycling Championship. And I know there were thousands of others who said, the minute that thing starts and our kids are out of school for that week, we are out of town. We are gone. We're taken off to Florida. There were tons of people that left what, the week the World Cycling Championship was How many gone. people are coming with bikes? Are you serious? Like, sheesh. That's a little um, over the top. It's it's a, it's look this this is a really tricky one and I know the supporters would say this is going to be a great event and it could be I just I don't know how some of these events I don't know how you sell this when we have grown very used to wanting the best we will happily show up to watch NBA stars play basketball we'll happily mm. do that we'll happily show up to watch the Canadian women's soccer team when it's the Olympic champions we'll happily do that but if it's something less than that do we do that it's, it's a much much harder sell when that's the case uh and the original cost of those original games back in 1930 97,973 dollars or what scott thompson makes every hour hosting on chnl <laughs> i don't think that's going to pay for your advertising budget for an event like this uh scott <laughs> no, radley's been Exactly. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. Robert, I just feel that uh, with all the uh, turmoil that's occurring all around the world, at some point in time, we're going to venture into a world war. There's a bunch of chess pieces on the board that are being moved. Uh, The Ukraine, uh, New Zealand, uh, Sweden, China, uh, North Korea. Russia, always the big player in the, in the stirring the pot. Economic uh, tyranny throughout that's being that the rich are getting richer. I just thought I'd give you my piece.